The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Well, good evening to you all. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be here, an honor. Last year, my wife and I came out here uh, for a little uh, R&R, and um, it, was, it was such a delight. It really was. It was uh, uh, an enormous encouragement to both of us, and, um, and we were thinking about coming out here again, um, and then Jake called and asked if I would come speak. Where'd Jake go? He's back there. So then we knew we had to come. Um, but, um, but thanks very much. Um, it really it was a huge encouragement to be with you all last year. And, um, and we're really thankful to be back again. Um, when uh, Jake shot me an email and, and said he wanted to talk to me about the possibility of coming out and, and speaking, I, I thought, oh no. Um, I mean, the Clear Note Pastors Conference, it's like Fight Club. <laughs> right? I don't even remember that movie exactly, but uh, you know, like they get together and they just punch each other. Right? I mean, because you know that when Tim gets up here, he's going to like start calling people out by name and telling them to stand up and confessing all their sins. <laughs> right? And then someone else is going to come up and do it for Tim. And I thought, oh man, what am I going to do? And then imagine my surprise when Jake says, we're thinking about doing something on fighting. <laughs> right, <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> A shock. <laughs> All right, I'll come. So uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity to join you in the fight. Let's pray. Father, we can do nothing apart from you. We know that we have no good apart from you. We have no strength, no power apart from you. And so we pray for that strength and power now. Pour out your spirit upon us. Cause your word to be powerful. Convict us of our sin. Admonish us, correct us, encourage us, build us up. And Father, we ask that you would make us mighty. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The North American church has largely consolidated around a strategy of cultural engagement and mission that I've been summarizing as retreating with dignity. Retreating with dignity. This means that almost all of our efforts at resistance to the encroaching unbelief and disobedience and apostasy in our culture center around what we believe will most preserve our dignity. That's what must be preserved at all costs. So we fight for meaningless accolades and kudos in the public square and at big tense conferences. Um, you know, yay, you're against racism, right, that kind of thing. Um, we fight for meaningless accolades and kudos in the public square and at big tent conferences at the terms, as the terms of our surrender. We're like Monty Python's brave Sir Robin. Remember Brave Sir Robin from Monty Python? Brave Sir Robin ran away when danger reared its ugly head. He bravely turned his tail and fled. Yes, Brave Sir Robin turned about and gallantly he chickened out. 
Bravely taking to his feet, he beat a very brave retreat, bravest of the brave, Sir Robin. Gallantly, he chickened out. This is nothing less than insolent and arrogant disobedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not send us out into all the world to make deals, to parlay, to coyly blend in with the natives. He sent us into all the world to disciple the nations, which means summoning them to bow their knees to Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, to confess that he is Lord of all, and this necessarily includes teaching them to obey God's word in its entirety. He sent us to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, to take every thought captive, to obey Jesus. And this necessarily means war. This means conflict, this means fighting. This is what the Apostle Paul called the good fight. If you're here, you most likely already agree with that, and if you don't, how'd you get in here? Are you lost? Our, our, our central problem is that we resent the way that God made the world. We resent it. We think there's a better way. There's gotta be a better way than fighting. You're just not saying it the right way. You're just, you just didn't spend enough time on it. There's gotta be a better way. G.K. Chesterton says somewhere, Reason is always a kind of brute force. Those who appeal to the head rather than the heart, however pallid and polite, are necessarily men of violence. We speak of touching a man's heart, but we can do nothing to his head but hit it. I think, I don't remember the context, I think Chesterton was actually complaining about this perhaps, and we can agree that if, to the extent that he might have been talking about rationalists, idolaters of reason, sure, there's a danger there, but nevertheless, part of what Chesterton is getting at is simply the way God made the world. God made the world with the principle of antithesis wound through it, the principle of antithesis. Antithesis, at its most basic, it just means basically the logical, the laws of identity and non-contradiction, what logicians call the law of identity and the law of non-contradiction, which is that A is A, that's what it is. Things have identities that are fixed and stable, and A cannot at the same time and in the same way be not, not A. I said too many nots in that sentence. A cannot at the same time and in the same way be not A. There we go. So this applies to what we believe is true. So oftentimes logicians use these things to describe truth statements, but not only do they apply to what's true, most importantly, or just as importantly, it applies to what is real out in the world. So male is male and not female, right? Um, a baby is a baby, a human being made in the image of God and is not a lump of tissue. Marriage is a marriage. And this applies to all kinds of things. So gravity, force, mass, torque, actions and reactions. This is all a matter of the world doing what it's supposed to do. It has a nature and it acts in a certain way when certain forces act upon it. I was on three airplanes yesterday. 
on a, these enormous pieces of metal that have no business flying through the air, right? And you just sit there and you're like, no, I'm doing it again. <laughs> Duh, <laughs> right? This is crazy, right? And they're going to light explosions on either side of you and they're going to fling you across the world, right? How is this a good idea? I, I listened to a, an audible uh, of uh, a recent biography of the Wright brothers. Um, I can't remember the author off the top of my head, and, and um, it's just amazing, um, you know, how many times they failed, <laughs> right? And, you, and down there in Kitty Hawk on the beach in North Carolina, and we get to the part where they finally flew, you know, a few hundred yards, and I almost cried. I mean, just, for, you know, wow. Um, but what's happening? What's happening is things that God made that have a particular kind of identity, they have a particular kind of makeup, they react under certain conditions with other things that God made. That's, that's, the, that's the, the idea, though, of, of antithesis at work in the world. Because gravity works a certain way and thrust and lift and, and, the, and the density of particular kind of materials and their weight and all that stuff, because those things are what they are and they don't, they don't shift and they don't change and they're not fluid in their identities, giant pieces of metal lift off the ground and carry hundreds of people all over the world. That's antithesis at work in the real world. And so math, science, physics, logic, language, all of these things depend on the fundamental reality of antithesis because something is what it is and it isn't something else. It acts in accordance with the nature that God gave to it. And it's the multiplicity of all these different identities, things that God made being utterly different and colliding that makes this world so lively and lovely. Collision is at the heart of the way God made the world. So in other words, even though the secular materialists are wrong, they are wrong, they say that's all that there is, material's all that there is, they're wrong, it is true that God designed the world with ironclad realities built into the whole thing such that reality is in constant collision. Conflict, tension. My feet are constantly colliding with the earth as they move and the rest of my body is colliding with the world all around me, right? I'm breathing in air that's colliding, thankfully, with the cilia in my lungs, keeping me alive. And then I'm forcing some of the air back out and it's, and it's pummeling vocal cords, right? And then that sound is exploding through my mouth. Conflict, conflict, conflict. And it's hitting off of things in this room and, and some of those things are your eardrums, right? Collision. Oxygen atoms, atoms, cells splitting, colliding, gravity pulling, air pressure bending, chemicals reacting, exploding. Another way of saying all of this is that God made the world with truth at the center of it. God made the world with truth at the center of it. This is because God, the word, is the truth. The second person of the Trinity is the truth. This means, and this means that antithesis is central to living in this world in wisdom. It's the way that God made the world, and so we need to just come along. 
he was blessing this fundamental reality. Uh, When God created the world and named it and blessed it, he was blessing this fundamental reality along with all the particularities. So when at the end of Genesis 1, when he blesses creation, he's blessing this part of creation too. That he made all of these particular things with these particular identities and the way that they function together. That when you do certain things to them, you act upon them, they'll react. He designed the world to be struck and pressed and broken and crushed and divided from glory to glory. This is a creation design feature. We see this in the creation week, God's dividing certain things. You know, he, he comes and he makes light and he says it's good and you think, great, that's great God, good job. And he comes back the next day and he, right, he breaks it in half. Light and darkness, and he's gonna come back and there's water and waters, and he breaks it in half and puts a firmament in the middle, and you're like, okay. And he pulls, it's good. But for God, it's not good enough. The clearest picture of this principle is the first surgical operation in the history of the world. In the creation of the woman from Adam's broken rib. God struck Adam in the side. One truth collided with another, and the greater truth won. The victory of that first bloody fight was the creation of a woman. Did the skin resist as much as skin could, and then it ripped, and then blood vessels broke. You know, there was blood, and he broke the rib, it snapped. Maybe he has a fancy saw, I don't know, right? But he broke it. He broke Adam's rib, he pulled it out and he built woman. So in our hubris, in our arrogance, we want there to be another way, a different way and God says this way, I break things and then I make them, I make beauty, I make glory. You can smash perfectly good grapes, lots of them, and make wine. You're smashing them. Right. That's the idea. God made the world that way. We, we want a pacifist way. We want a way of non-resistance. We want a path of, we want a painless, I don't know what you might call sort of evolutionary path where things just sort of come along. There's a number of, you know, volunteer grapes. <laughs> We would like to sort of naturally become wine, painlessly. No, it doesn't work that way. God breaks, God tears, God crushes and makes beauty. If the truth of Adam's rib was limp and bendy and squishy and amorphous and mystical, (laughs) if it wasn't quite there, there would be nothing there for God to work with. So the the thingness, the stuffness, the materiality, the identity of the way God made the world is central to all this. Antithesis is the good way. Antithesis is the beautiful way, the glorious way. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. You might be surprised, Tim's surprised. Tim Bouchon, that is. If there is a central conspirator, it's the devil 
And of course, he can do nothing apart from God's sovereign permission. So while I do believe that there are some men leading the Christian church who see the compromises they're making, part of the insidiousness of the devil is that he gets many Christians to compromise in little ways in the name of some greater good, but he doesn't let all of us see all of our compromises at the same time because then we'd be strongly tempted to repent. Right? So he gets a lot of people making little compromises, but they can't see each other's compromises, and they think, well, I've got my little compromise, and it's not that big of a deal, right? And so if there was a conspiracy, if, if the devil's doing something, he's not letting us see one another's compromises, because then if we saw how bad it really was, we'd be strongly tempted to repent. In other words, most Christians are being manipulated into retreat with Bible verses, Most Christians are being manipulated into retreat with Bible verses. And meanwhile, all of the cultural heat is heavily aimed at faithful Christians laying guilt for all of the great evils of the last, well, I don't know, the history of the world. All the violence and all the conflict and all the wars laid at biblical Christianity's feet, right? We're we're reminded constantly about the evils of the Crusades and the Inquisition and so-called wars of religion and slavery all the way down to lynch mobs and now pastors that abuse children and churches that cover it up. And all of this, right, is just, you know, so watch it. So, you know, ease up, pastor. Ease up, Christian. Look at how badly you've messed up. Look how bad your track record is. And the gospel of secularism comes running in, prancing in probably, Right? comes prancing in with the good news that peace will come without religion. Peace without all this fussiness about God and theology. And one of the central lies is that secularism will usher in this godless utopia without a fight. With pure reason, with politics, with committees, Whatever. So my central thesis for this talk tonight is from the beginning of the Bible to the end, one of the dominant themes is God's determination to get his people to revel in the glory of the antithesis, the good fight of glorying in the truth of the way God made the world and the riches of the reality that God made, and then Because sin has entered into the world, in this fallen world, this means joining him to fight back the darkness of sin and evil and death. So I want to start, I want to work my way through a a number of texts to just show this to you. This is God's goal. He created Adam and Eve in the beginning to join him in this. Glory in the antithesis, glory in the way that I made the world with this tension, this conflict, this collision at the center of it, and figuring out how I made the world. And then, and then once sin enters the world, of course, there's this added um, complication in the battle. Uh, Genesis three, you have to start in the beginning. Genesis three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty 
than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice this. This is a perfect world. A sinless world. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no guilt, no shame. Adam and Eve are naked and not ashamed. And into this perfect, beautiful world, God lets a talking serpent in. Right? Why? How, how did he get in there? To teach Adam and Eve to fight. He lets an enemy in. Right? To teach them to fight. Another beer like this. Perfect. It's a perfect world, it's a good world. And God says, Yeah, you need to learn to fight. This is wonderful, perfect. We think it's perfect. Just leave it. And God is, God is the God of, of, he's driving forward into more glory. And you see this in the creation week. We think, you know, day three, that was a gem, God. Just, that's great. Put a sticker on it. And he says, no, I'm coming back for more. On day four and on day five, and now I'm gonna get some helpers in this business. They're gonna be made in my image so they can do things like me. And they're gonna start dividing animals and saying, you're not like that one over there. And you're gonna name things and make distinctions and begin to see how I made the world and you'll do it with me. You'll see how I've made this world and you'll begin to, to fight this world and, and wrestle with this world with me. Right? How are they gonna get to the gold at the end of that river? And that's before sin, before death. God told them there's gold down that river. Right? Adam is just thinking there, writing down gold. How do you spell that? Gold. Right, down a river, okay. How is he gonna get down the river? He's gonna have to kill a tree and float on it probably. If it was a large river, right? He's, he's gonna, how's he gonna get the gold back? Right? There's all kinds of wrestling and fighting and breaking and dig, where's the gold? Has he gotta dig it? Gonna break the earth open and pull glory out of it. But Adam has something good to go on. Well, God broke this open and brought good things. Well, all right, let's try it, honey. What do you say? So in the middle of this perfect, glorious world, we, we're tempted to think, God, you know, this is perfect. This is glorious. He's, you know, all he's got to do is figure out how to make a hammock. And God says, what you need is a dragon. Perfect. Perfect setup, you need a dragon, why? To teach Adam and Eve to fight. God wants to teach his people to fight because he loves them. And because he loves the glory that he's made, he loves the glory that he has, he wants to teach us wisdom. In other words, God assigns conflict to those he loves. He assigns battle to those he is most pleased with. He's just pronounced this glorious blessing on the whole world and on Adam and Eve and in the midst of that glorious blessing says what you need is a good dragon. That's what you need. Talking one. 
with lies. Right? And so he comes in and immediately begins lying, questioning the word of God, questioning the truth of God. Did God really say? And of course, you know the story. The woman is deceived. Paul tells us that, that Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. And of course, you know, John Milton in Paradise Lost, he famously postulates that Adam despaired. He knew his wife was going to die, and so he decided to die with her, sort of the original Romeo and Juliet. What should Adam have done? He should have led his wife right to God and said, we did this, kill me instead. Let me die in her place. He should have embraced that fight. Instead, he ran away. Of course, they sin, God comes. You know the famous verse, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel, and so there you have this sort of, before the fall, what we might call a kind of dominion conflict built into the world. God's called Adam and Eve to take dominion with him, dig and build and crush and break and put it back together again, this kind of dominion conflict, this dominion warfare. What's added to that now is this, is expanded to include the curse of sin. So now wound through this world that Adam is supposed to rule and beautify and break apart and put back together, now wound through that is sin. Sin infects everything. Thorns infest the ground. So now not only do you have to dig into the ground, but now there's weeds in the ground. Not only do you have to lead your wife, but now she will fight you and you will fight with her. But the thing that I want to press upon is this idea that God assigns conflict to those he loves. God assigns, he did it with Adam and Eve in the garden, even before there's no sin. And then after sin, it includes the trouble of sin, but God doesn't stop doing that. He keeps assigning conflict to the people he's most pleased with. One of the best examples of this is Job. Right? Job chapter one reads kind of like Genesis one. Everything's perfect, right? There was a man who was blameless, perfect, pure, spotless, right? He had all these children and all these flocks and the kingdom was prosperous. And then there's the day when the sons of God appear before the Lord in his heavenly council and, you know, what, what's, what's you up to, Satan? Well, roaming to and fro. And the Lord says maybe some of the most terrifying words in the entire Bible. Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you don't, like, 
You don't want God to know you like that, right? Right? Do you want to keep your head down? God says, man, I've got an idea for you, right? Job, that there's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. When God is most pleased, he sends you into battle. And we think when the battle comes, what is our immediate thought? What happened? Something went wrong. Something went wrong. I, I did something wrong, right? I, I have enemies now. I have fighting. To, now that's... Remember, remember, there's a perfect world and God sends the dragon, sends the serpent. Why? To teach them to fight. And Job is faithful. He's faithful. He's upright. And God says, have you got <laughs> My favorite guy in all the world is Job. Would you please, uh, you know, go after him? <laughs> The rest of the book of Job is arguably, I think, the story of God teaching his son to fight. Right? Most of the book of Job is the longest blog war in the Bible. Right? You thought YouTube comments were bad. Right? They're still going. Shut up, Bill Dad. Right? And who is Elihu anyways? Right? When, when the Lord finally comes in the whirlwind, I don't, many of the, I, I, take, I take a kind of, I think a somewhat different read on those speeches. Many of the commentators say, now the Lord comes and tells Job, you know, basically settle down, buddy. Just cool it. Relax. I know you had a hard time, but really, I am God and you need to just submit. And I, don't, I don't think that's what God's doing in those speeches. What does he tell Job to do? Put on your armor. Gird up your loins. Let's go. Come on. Right? He sent the serpent. He sent the wicked friends trying to trap him in his words. He knew what he was, what's he doing? He's teaching him to fight. Come on. You want to know what else I wrestle, Job? I wrestle the snow and the rain. I, I take care of all of the animals. Come on. You're just getting started. Do you know about ostriches and do you know how they lay their eggs and then how they step on them? Right? What's he inviting Job to do? Rule the world with him. Study the world with me. Do you know these things, Job? Have you thought about these things? Do you know about war horses? Well, I've thought a little bit about them, maybe Job thought. Yeah. What about Leviathan? What about dragons? Do you play with them? Would you give one to your daughter as a pet? God says, I do. I wrestle dragons. Come on, Job. See, the Lord's coming, not, not rebuking him, not trying to crush him. He's coming as a faithful father saying, come on, you just you barely got started. I rule the heavens and the earth. I wrestle a lot bigger monsters than you have. Come on. Come on. Or think of Isaiah. Isaiah 
sees the Lord high and lifted up in all his glory. And Isaiah recognizes his sin and woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. And God sends the cherubim to cleanse his lips. Right? He's forgiven. God's pleased with him. And what does the Lord say? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He says, I've got just the job for you. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes until cities lie waste without inhabitant. What a call letter. That's That's my assignment to you, Isaiah, with whom I'm pleased. I'm going to send you to a people who will not listen to you, who will reject you, who will not follow you, and will be utterly destroyed at the end of it. That's your ministry. Right? They'll hate you, they'll not like you, and in the end they'll kill you. Because I love you. <laughs> Again, he keeps doing that. And just in case we thought, well, maybe that's just a fluke. Mark chapter one. Jesus' baptism. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. (laughs) It's almost like there's a pattern emerging. (laughs) You're my favorite. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You need a fight. You need a dragon. You need betraying friends. You need an uncooperative congregation. You need a fight. Speaking of the spirit driving men into battle, Samson's one of the most spirit-filled men in the Old Testament. I mean, you think Samson at various points was sort of like, like, you know, watching, you know, the spirit, whoa, the spirit comes and what happens? Immediately he's killing people, right? The spirit, boom, more people are dead. More Philistines are dead, right? Hebrews 12 says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Part of the same point. We, we often think of discipline only in the negative sense, right? We know that discipline includes that, right? Discipline includes punishment, includes you did this wrong and so that this is what, this is what you need to learn that lesson. But, but so much of discipline is positive, 
I mean, think about your favorite coaches. Right? You remember the, the, the best coaches, your favorite coaches? You hated them and you loved them <laughs> because of what they would do to you, right? Today we're going to run 10 miles. <laughs> right? Now we're gonna run wind sprints. Now we're gonna do another 50 layups. Now we're going to do, an, right? This is what your, the best coaches do to you. Why? Because they're angry at you? No, because they love you. Because they believe in what you're capable of. And they know what the game's going to require. You're going to be able to, you're gonna to need to be able to run farther than you think you can run. You're gonna to need to be able to last longer than you will think. One summer I went out for varsity soccer as a sophomore. We didn't have a JV team that year. And I got cut from the team after a few weeks of training. And I, it was Maryland, humid, 100 degrees, you know, running suicides across the soccer field for three weeks. And I, you know, and my buddy who was running cross country said, you should come out for cross country. Like you're in great shape. And he lied to me. Because cross country is nothing like soccer. And I remember going to the first practice and literally the, the woman said we were going to run 12 miles. Right? I almost just puked right there. I just, I think I made it to about three or four that day before some nice person came and picked me up. The thing I remember though is at the end of that season, November-ish, this crisp cold morning, Saturday morning, I ran a race, I was, I was not very good. But I finished and I got home and as I was getting out of the car, I had this weird, strange sensation. I just read, you know, ran the 5K and I thought, I could do that again. <laughs> And it was the most bizarre feeling in the world. And I've never been in that kind of shape since. <laughs> what are those coaches doing? They're breaking you. They're teaching you to fight yourself, fight the limits that you think you have. Right, your lungs screaming at you, we're gonna die, right? And you're everything, and, and the coach knows, no, you can actually do more. You're stronger than that. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he's pleased with his children, and so he, he sends them hard things because he thinks, well, then you're ready for the next thing. Right? You don't finish eighth grade and be like, well, ta-da. Right? No, it's ninth grade for you, buddy. Right? That's how it works. Right? From glory to glory. Well, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the triumph of the gospel through every conceivable form of conflict. Right? Think about it. Stoning, riots, imprisonment, more riots, slander, lies, false accusations, false teaching, demons, more imprisonment, shipwreck. Right? I mean, what, 
uh, you know, what pastoral planting, you know, missions committee would approve of this report, right? Paul, we're not sure this is really working out for you, right? And, and the, the glorious thing, if you're reading carefully through the book of Acts, because Luke knows, right? Luke knows what you're thinking. Another riot breaks out, there's stoning, there's imprisonment, you know, there's something happens, and on almost every single one of them, there's actually a little a, a report at the end. Because Luke knows what you're thinking. Luke, we're all cringing and you know, ducking and, oh, Paul. And almost every single one of them at the end, it says, and the saints were greatly encouraged. Many leading women of the city converted, right? Many of the Gentiles came to the Lord and the saints were built up. Read it, read it. That's how God built his church. And we, want, we think, no, there's gotta be another way. There's gotta be a different way. There's gotta be a, a peaceful way and there's not. That's not God's way. That's not what God's up to. God, the people that God loves, he sends trouble to them. He sends conflict to them and says, all right, come on. This is great. This is going to be great. Right? Right. Yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to break you. And yeah, and you're going to fail sometimes. And you get back up. Come on. Get back up. Do it again. Right? I, I just started working out with my son who's uh, in eighth grade. And he d- signed up for a conditioning class. And uh, so my wife convinced me to do this with him. And, uh, you know, the, the first time I went, the f- after the first week, I really couldn't walk f- for about a week. Like I just was kind of walking around, and I, I would tell people in my counseling sessions, I, it's not you, I hurt. Right? If, I, if, I, if I grimace really deeply, you know, <laughs> I'm frowning, it's not, you know, not necessarily about you. Might be, but it's mostly me. Right. What do you, when it hurts like that, do you say, well, I guess it didn't work? No, you, you say, it's working, right? That's actually the idea. You go, it's insane, but you go and you break your muscles. You rip them, you tear them, right? Because that's the way God made the world. You rip it, you tear it, you break it apart, and then because God made the world the way that he did, it comes back stronger, God says, this is how I'm gonna do it. This is, this is how I'm gonna build the kingdom. I'm gonna send Paul, this obnoxious Jew, all through the empire, and people are gonna hate him everywhere, and we're gonna take over the empire. Right? And of course, the book closes with those amazing words. He lived there two whole years at his own expense in Rome and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness without hindrance. Right? Every conceivable hindrance has been broken through. Right? But it was painful. There were stonings, there was imprisonment, there was hunger, there was shipwreck, there was rejection, there were lies, there was slander, all of those things. And where does he end up? In Rome, right? Right where he wanted to be. In fact, he got an expense paid trip to Rome, right? 
Not only am I going to get to Rome, I'm going to get to Rome on Rome's nickel. It was a little bumpy, but he got there. Revelation 19, I think, is that vision. is the vision of what God has been driving at the entire time. What he's still driving at. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But but the particular thing I want to draw your attention to are his armies. He has armies riding with him. He doesn't need him. (laughs) He doesn't need him. But he loves them. Right? That's the vision, that's the glorious vision, is the Lord Jesus, the king, riding with his armies. I wanna close with a few bullet points, just trying to answer the question, okay, so we've answered it sort of generally, what is conflict and what's good about it. We've been answering it generally, but I want to get a little more specific. What's, what's conflict for and what's virtuous about it? First, we should recognize that the central front in this great war is sinful man against a holy and just God. That's the, that's the central front, the central flashpoint Sinful man against a holy and just God. And this is why God is a man of war. Exodus 15.3 or Isaiah 42. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Isaiah 42.13. Right. And in the first instance, he conquers his foes by turning them into his friends. We often soft pedal the holy violence of conversion. I think we sometimes, we soft pedal that. I mean, we soft pedal this. I think probably we, we demonstrate that we're soft pedaling this in our evangelistic methods. We, we want a, 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 a coaxing, a constant coaxing form of evangelism an affirming. But it's, it's an act of holy violence. When God converts a sinner 
and to his friend, it's an act of holy violence. We were enemies, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were blasphemers, we hated God, and he conquered us. He conquered us. Apart from recognizing this, we will get the good fight wrong. This is the center of it. God conquers sinners. And we're ministers of this holy war. And this means that we're responsible to fight, but it also means that we're not the primary actors. God is the man of war. Jesus leads us into battle. And we're following him. He's the one conquering sinners. So why conflict? Well, because we're at war with God. Sinners are at war with God and God is determined to conquer them or destroy them. Secondly, this is from Judges 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. Judges 3, 1 and 2. God leaves enemies again. Why? To teach his people war. You didn't know it. So I'm going to leave a few around for you. So you will learn to fight them. Deuteronomy 13 talks about false prophets. And in that passage about false prophets, he says, he says, if somebody stands up and says, thus says the Lord, and it's in the name of a false God and so forth, and it comes true, he says, don't fear him, don't believe him, I'm testing you. God does that. He sends false teachers, false prophets, leaves enemies in the land, why? So that we might know war. What are dragons for? Fighting. That's what they're for. God leaves enemies in the land so that successive generations will teach and learn war. And the same is true of false teachers and false doctrines. The task of learning war requires us to learn to distinguish between fleshly fighting and spiritual fighting, doesn't it? James 4, right? Where do fights come from? This is the only verse that typically gets quoted. From your lusts, from your flesh, from your worldly wisdom, from your hatefulness. So we know, yeah, some fights come from that. And you need to get into fights so that you can begin to distinguish between spiritual warfare and the fleshly kind. There's, you know, there's lots of ways that this happens. You know, you, you call a brother on the mat and he says, he, he's, he says, you're completely wrong, right? And you might be wrong, he might be wrong, and now, what, what, how are you gonna respond? I, I've, uh, it's been a f- couple of years since I've been doing it regularly, but I, I went out to, uh, for a few years, I was going out to the University of Idaho campus, open air preaching. And um, that's just wonderful for your sanctification. Right? Um, go out there and just be yelled at. Be screamed at. Be accused of things that aren't true. 
right? You're, what's gonna come out? <laughs> Who are you really? Why are you there? <laughs> what are you doing there? And do you really love these people? Or is it about your ego or your pride? And you know, that'll come out. They're gonna poke and they're gonna poke and they're gonna poke. Why are you there? I've told my people before, how will you love your enemies if you don't have any? Right, people love to quote that verse. Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. And that's okay, so who are they? Oh, you haven't made any, right? One of the reasons why you have to have enemies is so you can love them. How will you obey that command? How will you do good to those who persecute you? Learning holy war is also essential to gathering God's sheep and driving away the wolves. It's essential to gathering God's sheep and driving away the wolves. Um, at the, at, a few years ago, I was preaching through the book of Exodus and, and this really weird thing showed up where as, as, as Israel is going out of Egypt, it, it says at the end of 430 years on that very day, all the armies of the Lord went up out of the land of Egypt. And I, that's weird. And I, I, you know, I did a little, check the Hebrew and it's, it's the word Sabaoth, right? Which we just sang a minute ago from the mighty fortresses our God, which is, which is not Sabbath, right? right? Sometimes, you know, it's, it's just a weird spelling of, no, it's not a weird spelling of Sabbath. It's Sabaoth, which means armies, hosts, right? Lord of armies, Lord of hosts. And that's the word. And I did a little search on it and it's used only five times in the whole Exodus narrative. And not once does it apply to the Egyptians. Right, and we were like, no, no, you know, Pharaoh and all his armies in the sea. Right. But according to the Hebrew, Pharaoh had no armies. He has might, he has strength, he has chariots, he has horses, he has no armies. The only armies in the whole story are God's armies. Israelites. What is that story about, right? It's God going to war with Egypt. Going to war with the gods of Egypt, right? Why? To call his people home. Let them go, let them come home. They're my people. Israel is my son. And if you don't let my son go, I'll kill your son. And so he did. And you look at that, right? So first of all, God fights to gather his people and destroy his enemies, right? God fights to gather his people and scatter his enemies. And then, and then you look at what he's got and you think, you, you saved them? <laughs> right? What did his armies do? 
Mostly they complained. Mostly they weren't sure. And then finally at the end, they reluctantly killed lambs, put blood on their doorposts, and ate unleavened bread. And God says, they're my armies. (laughs) They're my armies. You see, learning to fight the battles that God gives us is learning what God considers strong. I haven't gone to all the verses that everyone wants to go to. Our, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And yes, of course. Right. Of course. We're talking about the truth. We're talking about preaching the gospel. We're talking about raising armies of people who will put the blood over the door and eat the Passover meal and become God's victorious armies. And of course, they even plunder them as they go. <laughs> right? Remember Joshua 23, one man of you puts to flight a thousand since it's the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. And contrast that with Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses that is gonna be that curse song that echoes in their ears as they turn away from the Lord. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to fight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it's the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless the rock, their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? If the Lord is with us, one puts to flight a thousand. And if he isn't, we're chased by one. (laughs) All right? So the Lord calls us to fight. Why? He's to teach us. To teach us to fight. He calls us to join him, right? And, And to join him in learning the way that he made the world. Join him in the battle against sin against the flesh, against evil, against lies, against apostasy, but ultimately teaching us that about his strength. A number of years ago when I was out preaching one time, I had a, a gentleman accost me. He starts hurling insults at me. And he, and and I you know, try to get his name. Hey, what's, I was, you know, what's your name? You know, can we grab coffee? No, I'm not going to tell you my name. No, I don't want to get away. You, you just, you're out here because you hate us. And, I'm in a, and this crowd forms, you know. And I sit 45 minutes explaining the gospel and trying to defend the, the, the truth. And, you know, and then it kind of scatters. And as I was going that fall, almost every week I'd go on Friday and the same guy would show up. Right, and, and every week, the crowd got a little bit bigger. And then towards the end of the, the fall, actually, Doug Wilson came out with me one time, and we were kind of taking turns, and, um, and this new kid shows up. And, and if, you know, if you could imagine it, even more nasty, and, 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 you know, just, and he was going after Doug. He's a little, you know, probably 17-year-old punk just tearing into Doug and Doug was answering him graciously and, and we had the biggest 
I mean, we probably had four or 500 people in this square listening to us, asking, what does the Bible say about this? What do you think about this? What about that? What and we're just ask, answering questions. And then afterwards, the, the man who would come up every week and chew me out came up and said, I'm really sorry about that other guy. My name's Justin. And we went out for coffee. Right? The wisdom of the world says, you know, oh, that's a really bad way to, that's a really bad way to do it. But I'm convinced that over the course of that fall, God gave me that man to scream insults at me week after week after week so that hundreds of other students would hear the gospel and then in God's good timing sent another heckler at just the right moment so that that man would be softened. Right? So my charge is to remember that God sends fights to those he loves. He sent a dragon into the garden. He sent his son into the wilderness. And, and we, need, we need to just get it into our heads that if, if, you're, if you're seeking God, if you're seeking him with your whole heart and with all your mind and all your strength and you are at God's disposal, he's going to send you into a fight. And when you get there, you can't stop and say, what happened? What, something must have gone, no, this is it. Right? This is what the Lord does. He sends you into battle. And yes, you're gonna fail. You're gonna pop off. You're gonna have to go and confess your sin to some pagan. Yeah, do that, right? That's what God uses. And do not be afraid. Stand there and smile. Stand there and tell the truth. I think maybe the last reason there's lots more. <laughs> Is that faithful fighting teaches us to fight for real glory. Real glory. Right? What, are you, what are you in it for? There's, yeah, there's the glory of man, the respect of man, the admiration of man. And that sucks. It's, it's, it doesn't, it's nothing. It's garbage. Paul says it's, it's worthless. But if that's what you're doing, you won't want to fight. You might, you might pretend to fight in particular places, but you're not really going to fight. Because fighting will make you look bad. Fighting will make you look, well, belligerent. Fighting isn't popular. So what are you in it for? Are you in it for the glory of God? That's worth fighting for. Let's pray.